Welcome to Off Center, the podcast about digital narrative and algorithmic narrativity. My name is Scott Retberg, and I'm the director of the Center for Digital Narrative at the University of Bergen. In this podcast, I'll have conversations with the researchers at the Center, as well as other experts in the field to discuss topics revolving around digital storytelling and its impact on contemporary culture. What is zombie yoga? And can playing a game change your life? Today on Off Center, I'll be talking with Doris Rush, a game designer and senior lecturer at Uppsala University, and Professor Tew with the Center for Digital Narrative about existential, transformative game design. Welcome to Off Center. I'm Scott Rutberg, the director of the Center for Digital Narrative, and today I'm here with Doris Rush. Welcome. Thank you. Doris, you're a researcher at Uppsala University That's uh, on game studies uh, and game design specifically. Can you say a little bit about your background as a researcher and how you ended up in game studies and actually designing games? Yeah, absolutely. I have a background in the humanities, so a very traditional route from literature to theater to film and philosophy at the University of Vienna in Austria. And then when I wrote my dissertation, I studied online journalism and its emotional impact and how we can design for arts coverage. And so suddenly there was a new media component and storytelling on the web using the different channels of that the web had at its disposal. And so I got into games a little bit more also and thought that's really interesting. Were you a game player? Were you a... uh, Well, I had a boyfriend at the time who played games. It's kind of the classical story. <laughs> <laughs> and he introduced me to a lot of really interesting stuff like the old Diablo and I, I loved it. And it was uh, super fascinating. And I thought, well, hmm, I always wanted to do something new, something that doesn't have a lot of academic baggage already and is a new emerging form. But there was nobody around in Austria at the time that did something like this. So I wrote and this a... this is what, 20, That was like, yeah, yeah, about yeah. that, 20. Oh my God, it's dating me. <laughs> <laughs> so I decided to just look into that and wrote a research proposal and got funding from the Austrian government. And they required me to have an external partner somewhere, an international partner. So I found the IT university in Copenhagen and they did game studies and it was right, Espen right. Arset was and Gonzalo Frasca, yeah. who is like one of my big idols and yes, Bejul. And so I went and visited and did a workshop there. And then I also found Henry Jenkins and he was at MIT. And I actually at the time didn't even know what that was. All right. <laughs> Humanities <laughs> person. Like, what do I know about an engineering school, right? It's just the best in the world. And he and William Uricchio, they invited me to be a visiting scholar. Right. So I did that and it got me into games more and more. Awesome. And, and I started designing. <laughs> well, of course, uh, Espen Orseth was from the University of Bergen and uh, they classically, the uh, comparative literature department here wouldn't let him teach games. Mm-hmm. And so, so he quit and went to ITU. Yep, smart. <laughs> so you kind of had this background studying literature, studying media. How was that shift to, to actually engaging with the act of creation? So, Well, I only studied literature because there were no creative writing programs in Austria. Mm. But I've always seen myself very much as a, as a maker. Like, I'm interested in theory 
in so far as it lets me do stuff <laughs> in an Great. informed and educated way. So I, I have a lot of different curiosities and I love to dive into things. And then my, my core question has always been, how can I apply this to something that's useful to a broad audience? And I'm not saying theory as theory isn't useful. Please yeah. don't get it the wrong way. But I just take great pleasure and joy in the creative process. So I made some films and I made radio and all of this stuff. And so when I was done with my humanities education and I had a chance to be at MIT at the Gambit Game Lab, and that was a game design research lab, right. I started calling myself a designer before I had made my first game and just dove in, had no idea what I was doing but figured it out as I went. People were patient and educated me and I learned and I made stuff and that was great. Awesome. Since then, that's been what I was doing. <laughs> well, excellent. And you have a particular approach to games. Uh, I read a couple of your articles and you've written about existential transformative game design. And those are concepts that don't kind of leap to mind when I think about commercial games, uh, Doom or something like <laughs> that. Uh, not that Doom's... Doom's uh, very uh, existential. Yeah, <laughs> in, a, in a dungeon, sort of. Can you say a little bit about that concept about existential transformative games and, and how you try to develop it through the sort of indie games that you've developed uh, individually and through your collaborations? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the existential transformative games Game design framework didn't come out of nothing. I had about 12 years of engaging with games as a as a deep form of expression. So deep games, I wrote a book about that, taught a bunch of courses on that. And it's how we can make games that illuminate the human experience, the bandwidth of the human experience. And I explored that through metaphorical approaches to games about addiction, depression, anxiety, all the fun mm -hmm. stuff. And at some point, that really segued into, okay, what are the deeper questions here? Because in the games for change and games for health space that mm -hmm. this previous work landed me in, there was a core concern for how do you measure impact? How do you measure that this is making somebody more mentally healthy, whatever that means? And I, I got really frustrated with that. And I actually started studying in a clinical and mental health counseling master program because oh, wow. I wanted to know like, what, what is this transformation that we ask games to do. And there I discovered the more deeply the existential psychotherapy and Irvin Yalom and all of these works. And it just resonated with me. We can engage with the system and the framework of a game as an explorative space to wrestle with these big questions of why right. are we here? Who are we? How do we connect to others? And, and I was very intrigued by how we can harness the concept of psychological resonance wow. to create something that people engage with without the designer already predetermining, this is the change I want to see. Right. So what sort of changes uh, do you want to see or do you think uh, games could have power? What I'm really curious about is how we can afford people opportunities, both through the narrative of a game, but also the amount of agency we give them in the system of the game to really inquire, is what I'm doing with my life aligned with my deepest essence, with my desires, with my longings that are not, you know, when I, when I speak of longing, I don't mean I want a new iPhone. I mean, what matters to me the most? So really this existential level and how can we do this in in a way of posing questions in a game? I think Journey is doing a beautiful job with that. 
Um, I also think that Wald in the game has done a beautiful job playing with a lot of these existential themes and and raising these questions for people to explore on their own terms. So I'm I'm familiar with those uh, two games, but probably a lot of uh, listeners, when they hear uh, Walden, they just think of uh, Thoreau's uh, Mm -hmm. novel. But maybe could you say a little bit about those two games, Journey and Walden, and and explain a little bit more about how that connects with Mm -hmm. your ideas? Yeah, so, I mean, when I played Journey, I was intrigued and lost at the same time. I'm, as many academics, a really cerebral person. <laughs> and this is a game where you're sort of wandering in the desert. Thank and, you. Yes, it's yeah. a yes. <laughs> it's it's modeled after the hero's journey. At least that's what Genova Chen, who was the lead designer behind it and the, like the creator, explained it. So you are thrown into an unknown environment and you are on this journey towards some mountain. And that's the end point. It's like the journey of life. Right. And which in and of itself, birth, death is very existential. It doesn't get more existential than that in a way. And you don't know what's on the mountain, right? Or you like, have yeah. no idea. Yeah. And and you can meet, if you play it in multiplayer, you can meet other people or not. But you can't talk. You can just wave, which is nice. So no mm-hmm. trolling. <laughs> <laughs> and you discover these remnants of other cultures. And it's it's very not combat informed it's very non-mechanic it's very flowy and floaty and it's not like about winning even right no it's not which is also how do we win at life so it's really taking all of these quantification measures that so often govern our gameplay experiences completely out of the equation and mm-hmm. it's just posing questions why are we here what are we doing how do we deal with that uncertainty and it got me to reflect on how how do I approach this in real life when I don't know what's going on. Mm-hmm. And a similar experience was with Walden, which I totally sucked at when I started playing it because I <laughs> approached it as a, this is a game. You like need to the, get the fish and you need to yeah, build the house. Yeah, it tells, to, exactly. Yeah. It tells me that I have a cottage to finish and winter's coming and I have my <laughs> fuel storage always has to be full. Mm-hmm. And since you are in the shoes of Thoreau, you're supposed to get inspired. That's the whole reason you're in the woods. You're not a survivalist. Mm-hmm. It's okay if you're if you're a bit cold and hungry, you just go to the city, get some pie from your family and you're fine. And I was totally in red, uninspired, which okay. also made me reflect about life. What boxes am I constantly checking off? And where can I make room for that uncertainty of not having everything neatly stowed away? Right. Just to be in the moment, just to fish for the sake of being at the water. For the sake of fishing, not yeah, for exactly. the sake of catching the fish. Exactly. Yeah. And again, it's it's playing. It's very cleverly different than Journey that just doesn't have any points or anything. It's really playing with the gaming expectation, but that makes it a beautiful metaphor for how we gamify our entire life. Right. We're so used to these metrics and, and measurements and somebody else having the parameters for us to, to live by and setting the standards and the structures and the rules. And we follow that. And what if we have to question this? Yeah. What really inspires us? Yeah, it'd be really interesting to see about how Thoreau would, would react to the to the present moment. <laughs> I yeah. remember lines about trains and, and sort of uh, <laughs> the destruction that they were going to bring to human existence. <laughs> I wonder how I'd think about AI. Yeah. One of the things when I was sort of looking through your work, there's sort of serious games that are kind of games that are uh, making some kind of ideological argument or games for change where people are sort of 
you know, using games to make evidence some certain aspects of, say, things like climate change. But there's a real focus in your work on games that could be described as therapeutic and even some of them kind of medically therapeutic. So, for example, I've seen that you've done work with scientists, games that are about, for example, recovering from sickle cell anemia or, mm. or, and a traumatic brain injury. Mm-hmm. and these other medical conditions. So I'm just interested, how did those games and those uh, collaborations come about and and sort of what did you learn from working in that context with mm-hmm. doctors and so forth? Yeah, good question. Also throw back to a time where I was at DePaul University in Chicago and had my deep games lab there. I mean, the collaborations, I've always been really intrigued by medicine. My father used to work in a medical context, so I've always been really intrigued by the human body and the systems that are at play there, and also that it's something so real. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, I've just gravitated towards these issues somehow. And the sickle cell game actually came to me through our basketball team at DePaul University, because one of their star players had sickle cell disease wow. and still managed to be a top athlete. And his mission was to raise awareness that you can live a full life even if you have sickle cell. So there was a private donor who gave money for us to develop this game for the team. So I made contact with a sickle cell expert at the hospital in Chicago that was most known for this and found a small team and we developed this game together with the patients there and the mothers and and parents of the kids that had sickle cell and also social workers involved in that. And we really focused on re-educating preteens and teens on self-care. So it's not like a medical game in the sense of contributing knowledge to the medical field or, or treating anybody, but helping them understand, okay, if you get too cold or too hot, then there's a likelihood for a pain crisis, or you have to take your medicine regularly to prevent these cells from clumping together. So it was a platformer game that we made that had all of these elements in there, and it was set in this mythical journey environment. And it used fantasy, but also these really established strategies that patients with sickle cell have to use to avoid pain crisis as much as possible. So that was one of the things we did and was very interesting to work with that audience. Yeah, that's really interesting. Cool. I, I grew up watching Blue Demons games, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Blue <laughs> Demons. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's funny. In your game development collaborations, you're described as a narrative designer, and we're sort of the center for digital narrative here that you're, you're, you're working with us on. And you're often working alongside programmers and, I assume, visual designers, uh, illustrators, others. And one of my questions, just sort of more broadly, is what is a narrative designer? <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting that I'm described as a narrative designer. <laughs> I love story and I have a, a big background in in studying and creating stories. But when I started on my games journey, I actually really embraced the systems part. So I definitely started as a so-called ludologist mm-hmm. and was also in my early career very scolded by a lot of people for being way too narrative in my in my approach. So it's like, yeah, systems, I've got to understand that. Mm-hmm. But I mean, systems tell stories too. 
right? Yeah. You engage with them and and you make up your own story. So for me, there are established definitions for what narrative design is in games. It also depends on the size of the team and whatnot. But for me, it's about how can we create narratively evocative experiences right. through whatever means are available in the medium of the game and understood very, very broadly what that is. Games in real life, hybrid games, digital games, games with novel interfaces, arcades, whatever. And how can we connect the themes that these games tackle? For me, it's very important that they have some kind of a theme. How can we render that creatively so people are stimulated in their imagination? Mm -hmm. It's not just a straightforward, this is exactly how it works in reality, but always opening a door to an imaginary space, a metaphorical space, a symbolic space, to get people to see things just a little bit differently, to leave mm -hmm. behind what they think they know about something and enter fresh and discover on their own terms. Yeah, well, it's funny because you go back to that narratology, uh, ludology, and that you sort of felt like you had to protect your identity as a... <laughs> As being a real, uh, real ludologist, I, I remember that moment, a moment that makes sense in a way and that it was sort of saying, all right, we need to have our own vocabulary mm -hmm. for, for what a game is and how it's uh, different from story. But I do think there was this kind of, in a way, overreaction uh, to say, all right, no, we're done. we don't no, do totally story. Totally agree. And, and maybe even, you know, if I think about the word narrative designer, it just seems like it's very carefully avoiding the phrase writer. You know? <laughs> and a I'm way, a writer too, so it's, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but in a way, then when I, I also think about that, the idea of uh, that every game experience is sort of a potential narrative and that when I play a game, I'm going to come away with it, even if it's the same narrative structure. I'm going to come away with it from it with a different story than other people who've played the game. So sure. I sort of like the idea of that, the sort of potential storytelling machine yeah. that a lot of interactive narrative art. Mm. I feel like I've come full circle anyways to now being very narrative with the last projects that I've been doing with Andy mm -hmm. Phelps on The Witch's Way. So that's just, that's all writing and text and, and telling a story. So, so I embrace did, both. <laughs> yeah, so tell us more about, about The Witch's Way. Yeah, you asked me in the beginning about this existential transformative game design framework and The Witch's Way was one project that tried to put that into practice through our own creation. So it's an adventure game in a way, text-based adventure game that asks the existential question of identity. Who are you? What's your essence? What's aligned? What is not? What do you have to get rid of? And it's doing so in a sort of magical realism kind of way. You're a witch, you don't know it. You move to a little cottage in the woods and you have to figure out your life. You have a year. <laughs> <laughs> it's meant to be really fun and playful and not too serious yeah. and taking a lot of Terry Pratchett references and working with the language of symbolism and imagery a lot. So there are a lot of rituals that you have to discover mm -hmm. and do and uncover what has kept you from pursuing your passions and, and you meet this old tired dog and then spoiler spoiler realize mm -hmm. that's like your inner child and your, your okay. inner playfulness and you reconcile with that so it was a really fun collaboration where i just got to write again yeah. and play with language which 
I love and Andy Phelps did a tremendous job hacking Twine and making the game savable and having chapters right. <laughs> and illustrated it as also. And now we work on the second chapter, which is summer. <laughs> Great. Just in terms of maybe coming back to form, what are the advantages and disadvantages if you think about something that's, say, a game that you develop in Unity or something like that, where there's a lot of assets and a lot mm -hmm. of interaction design of various kinds, to something that's more, what you're describing sounds more like it's textual, uses Twine, has maybe an advanced version of Twine, this storytelling platform. But it sounds like maybe that gives you a bit more as a creator Mm -hmm. gives you a little bit more immediacy into the work. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I used to love working with teams and, and bigger teams, even though it's a pain in the butt. But it's also beautiful and wonderful to get all of these different inputs. And I had that luxury when I was at DePaul and, run, and ran my own lab. And then I came to Uppsala University and that infrastructure just wasn't there in the same way. And I didn't quite know how to figure that out. So I thought, well, I want to keep making stuff. What can I do? I can write. Mm. <laughs> and so I just turned that into an advantage. And yeah. I so embrace it because I can... I can do it, you know, from four to six every day. I sit and write. Wow. And at some point, Andy and I touch base and say, here it is. Go work your magic. Cool. And and he does. And it's fabulous. For me right now, there's so much more freedom to just go play and explore and put my thoughts down and then have in the background of my mind, okay, how could I challenge Andy? <laughs> like, what could I give yeah. him to make this interesting? Yeah, no, it's funny. It's this sort of a surprising turn, I think, in terms of the popularity of twine-based games or, or textual games, which were really one of these earliest forms of computer games, but also earliest forms of electronic literature. And it does seem like, you know, my kids uh, mm -hmm. play Twine games, right? And a whole culture has, has grown up around them mm -hmm. that's in a way kind of unexpected, I think, when you come from this sort of commercial games era that takes up so much of the entertainment industry. Mm -hmm. um, and then all of a sudden, there's this kind of flowering of, uh, in a way, the apparatus of these types of games is very similar to you know, the kind of games that we had before graphics chips yeah. uh, were, in, were in PCs, right? Mm -hmm. What do you think about that sort of kind of cycle of return there? Yeah. yeah, I do think that our most powerful graphics card is our imagination. Mm. And that there is something really sweet and beautiful about these smaller projects because they do have a chance to be way more personal, mm -hmm. for better or worse. <laughs> yeah. And accessible and it's just opening up that whole game creation storytelling domain to people to contribute and take part in this sharing of these stories that are not as commercially driven that can be right. quirky and weird and different and and just tickle us in different ways let's talk about zombie yoga Oh, let's. <laughs> so I love this concept. And this was a game that you worked on uh, about 10 or 12 years ago, right? Mm -hmm. What drew you to draw together these two elements of zombie and yoga? <laughs> well, the zombies are not your traditional zombies. There is no gore. They are kind of these shadow creatures. And I just really... The title Zombie Yoga just came to me and I thought, this kind, that's cool, I like it. And people responded so positively to it and they were so curious. So that rather than saying something like, 
yoga to liberate your inner child by fighting your inner fears that are, you know, metaphorically represented as, as you said, it's zombie yoga. Mm -hmm. But the zombies are representations of your inner fears and metaphorical and they dissolve into smoke when you hit them with your light ball which is your <laughs> inner light the origin of this very strange game which is a kinect game so you actually do four different yoga poses the ones you got to work for the kinect and that people can be reasonably be expected to perform without having to be yogis was that i did a tai chi class mm. <laughs> And we did an exercise called push hands and I felt, which is a partner exercise where you try to sort of break into somebody else's space. Mm -hmm. And I felt very emotionally bombarded, like emotionally more than physically. And of course, like everything that makes me really excited inwardly, I need to turn it into a game. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. So I decided, yeah, this, this has to be a game where people can explore physically things that are emotionally resonant. And so the idea of zombie yoga was born. I also dreamed about it, and which is always a good sign that I have to make a game about it. And then, yeah, we made this Kinect game and, and you do four different yoga poses to direct your light ball and go down a spiral where you heal different kinds of wounds in your past. You reconcile with uh, loss, with a mother figure that has been problematic and a loss of playfulness. Mm -hmm. And every station opens up a bone cage that is at the center, at the bottom of the spiral, and there's like a baby in there. It's, <laughs> it's really intense. And so every every station where you reconcile something from your past opens up that that bone cage, and in the end you you sort of you dance with your inner child because you're playing a dancer. Unless the zombies get to you. Yeah, but then you just restart. <laughs> you, you will liberate your inner child. You will. Find your inner child by eliminating the zombies. Exactly. By finding your inner peace. Yes, <laughs> That's something awesome. like that. This game, like a lot of the, the ones that you mentioned, it seems like embodiment is a really uh, important element kind of coming back to the body, which a lot of people associate, you know, games with sitting hunched in front of a, in front of a screen. Hmm. Are you in some ways kind of trying to bring the body back in and to you know, sort of get us out of that. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally shocked that the body is something that needs to be brought back in, <laughs> right? But definitely it is. And I've seen that in my own journey, how easy it is to just live in the head. And if we only live in the head, we get very disconnected from that sense of what is what feels right because mm -hmm. we just don't feel as much. Yeah. So that has been a full personal exploration and it started way before zombie yoga but that was the actual attempt first attempt to create something that brings these two worlds together and it's been with me ever since i've worked with dance and movement therapist um and and try to really marry my love for physical exploration mm -hmm. with narrative and mythology and ritual and symbolic enactment and there is so powerful to perform a symbolic action and yet i felt so limited in the digital game space so finding ways to have more hybrid play use technology to enhance and augment our understanding of our physicality and really fuse them together more is, is definitely a, a research area that mm -hmm. i want to dive in more and more yeah, and so symbolic action, this is sort of an action that's almost metaphoric, but that it actually has a kind of physical, psychological effect. 
Yeah, yeah, strongly. So the concept of psychomagic, as Alejandro Jodorowsky has coined mm-hmm. it, splitting a watermelon in two is a very powerful action. And if mm-hmm. you then imagine it is some somebody you have a problem with, like, <laughs> yeah, you just splatter of a watermelon. Yeah. Then this is powerful. Yeah? yeah, and it's better to do it like this. On the watermelon? Than, <laughs> yeah. And on right? the head, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I hope so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe to kind of come back to that whole games uh, story uh, question that's that's guided a lot of the, the structuring of, of game studies. One of the things I noticed when I started teaching courses in game studies after a while, I, I should just admit that I'm not an avid gamer uh, myself. I've written a couple of, of things about games, but I always feel like I'm a little bit behind the, the homework because I haven't played enough games, you know. But one of the things I noticed in reading the literature in, in recent years is this sort of growth of things like what they call walking simulators, uh, games that are strongly narrative-driven or where the, the sort of reward for the game is is more revelations mm-hmm. of the story. So just a general question, I guess, for you is how do games tell stories in modes that are sort of specific to games that we don't find in, in other sorts of narrative forms? Mm-hmm. I learned most about that from Janet Murray and her by now a bit maybe dated book Hamlet on the Holodeck Mm -hmm. but I got really really inspired by that when I read it many years ago and I still think that there is a lot to the concepts that she explains in that book of the maze or the labyrinth as a as a storytelling platform that is very discovery driven and this the, the spatial component of games you can walk around the space and the the narrative architecture of that as Henry Jenkins called it so Mm -hmm. the exploration part seems still really relevant to me now how do we bring this also into the mechanics and and rules place so Mm -hmm. you have the systems part that also expresses something we know the concept of procedural expression or procedural rhetoric that Ian Bogus talks about and Gonzalo Frasca has talked about a lot so it's these things coming together and then with virtual reality when you can be in a physical space also and you can bring your body into that we have yet another component where we can experience and sense and I'm also really inspired by Kawa Abe's work on using sensors and variables and these gloves and, and mm. all of that. It's also a merging of technology. More haptic. Uh, yeah. 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 And, and, and her background is in fashion design, right? So bringing that in, is these are amazing opportunities. And there is not one future of narrative in games. It's so many. It's whatever you want it to be that allows us to explore experiences that are evocative and get our imagination going. So mm-hmm. the walking simulator is one sweet niche that has been developing that's really tapping into the explorative spatial component, stripping it of the points and the franticness and also allowing a whole new audience to engage with games and enjoy games and not be held back by, oh, I don't have the dexterity to do this. Right, right. That's not a yeah, finger like, finger athleticism. Exactly. Thumb, thumb clicking. Like the uh, older I get, the more I <laughs> suck at these things because I don't have to practice. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Or the time, really. Just yeah, to, yeah. To get to level fifty-two, mm-hmm. uh, I sort of miss. I, I miss going to the arcade and putting a coin in and. <laughs> 
being challenged for you know five to ten minutes of adrenaline. And, yeah, for sure. <laughs> and, then, and then going home, you know. One of the things that I, I thought ex- exciting about your work, and you've described this a little bit, was the idea that in your scholarship, for example, you have a lot of references to game studies and media studies, which you mentioned a few of these people, but also to psychology and, and psychotherapy theory, you know, all the way back to Jung, uh, to the present, to neurobiology and, and cognition and, you know, theorists like uh, Joseph Campbell who are kind of connecting story and, and psychology. So there's a lot of sort of connections to the narratological ways of thinking and sort of a really exciting interdisciplinarity, mm-hmm. I guess you'd say, which is one of the things we're trying to think a lot about with the Center for Digital Narrative, what happens when we bring mm-hmm. these different perspectives together. So how did, from where you began to, to where you are now, you mentioned that you had the idea of theory as being a framework for creation. How do you think bringing all those elements together has has transformed your your process or the way that you think about creative making? Huh. Easy question. Is it? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I've definitely had a lot of fun. And by giving myself the freedom and permission to be a bit of a dabbler, Mm. I draw on neurobiology and I'm not a neurobiologist. And I think people who really are versed in that field might be (laughs) disturbed (laughs) by some of the things that just shamelessly draw on and explore in the games that I make. And yet my goal is not to make a contribution to neurobiology, right? Right. So (laughs) I think it's okay. It definitely has expanded my capacity to tackle different topics by just becoming good at reading up on very different domains and using that to inform the game design process. And I always say, I think quite carefully, this is my inspiration, not this is a totally super well-established theoretical background. Yeah, I mean, yes, there is theory in there and I'm trying to not suck but <laughs> but I also say this is this is inspiration and I'm rendering it creatively and I see what happens with that yeah and these two strands of psychology and and story have always been with me because when I first enrolled when I went to university I enrolled in psychology and literature right. <laughs> so that has always been a thing kind of come back to it. Yeah, really. And it is the story of the soul that I'm after. Wonderful. And myth and magic Mm. seems to be very important to you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, myth is an expression of the soul through not just psychological, also environmental concepts. I think they're deeply informative of how we relate to ourselves and others and the non-human world. I'm a, a huge fan these days of Martin Shaw and how he uses romanticism as activism and tells stories back to nature and and the sense of place. And when I look at this and then I look at the somatics training that I've been in at Strozier Institute where it's all about the body, but it's also about the body as entangled with all other living creatures. Right. So that sense of of meaning and purpose and relatedness and, and how we weave that into a love story for aliveness it all yeah. comes together in how i see games and create games and just just want to play and make things for others to play and explore that loving aliveness and entanglement great final question so you really believe that games can be transformative and 
I guess one thing I, I think about as I watch, for example, my kids during the pandemic and all the other <laughs> all the other kids uh, in the world, where the, the games did have a different function all of a sudden, right? Mm-hmm. But I'm still not sure, are they coming to games for that kind of transformation? And we, we often hear a lot about the sort of potentially damaging effects of gaming, mm-hmm. which are also, you know, real, mm-hmm. I think. But is this sort of a way of, of kind of flipping that around, of trying to use games to bring Gen Z, to bring kids, to bring us back into the world? Mm. You know, I have really made it a point and I try to really live that to extend invitations rather than impositions. Mm. And I'm not trying to get anybody to do anything <laughs> or transform. I want to create work that is meaningful to me and that I do think has a chance to reach others if and when they're open and ready for it. Mm -hmm. And if not, then that's fine too. And transformation, we have actually no idea how people really transform. It's so complex. Sometimes it can be the word of a lover and it transforms you forever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Because you were ready, it just hit you at the right time. And you can create the most profound thing intentionally with lots of testing and some people are just completely immune to it because it's not the right time for them or maybe never will be and that's fine so i think it's good that we have these offers and invitations out there and for as many people as possible to give themselves permission to create and share and be open and vulnerable about what they care about and it will fall on fertile ground for some And I think it's fantastic to just have many things existing next to each other. Yeah, and to play. And to play. So I'm really looking forward to, uh, you're going to be in a 20% position with the Center for Digital Narrative with us. And we're looking forward to playing with each other as part part of what we're doing (laughs) for the next uh, period. So really looking forward to uh, seeing what sorts of uh, narrative experiments and explorations come out of your work with with transformative games. And we'll be be showing more of that over the course of the, the project and seeing what we what we discover. So thanks very much. I've been talking with Doris Rush, who's a professor of game design at Uppsala University and a uh, professor, too, with the Center for Digital Narrative at the University of Bergen. Well, this concludes season one of Off Center. This season, we've listened to interviews covering the launch of the center, the electronic book review, and the history of open access publishing, artistic research in digital media. We've talked about meme culture and its connection to the January 6th insurrection in the United States. We've talked about gendered AI and computational creativity in AI. We've talked about hypertext and its history as a technology and literature. We've explored computational narrative systems, fan fiction, immersive storytelling in augmented digital media, combinatory cinema, and transformative games. We'll be back next season in February with more interviews about digital narrativity. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk with you soon. And Happy New Year. Make sure to follow us on social media by searching your favorite network for the Center for Digital Narrative to keep up to date with our next episodes. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you for listening. Off Center is produced by Jesse Von Balcom with the assistance of the design skills of Valeria Antizana Acosta 
And we want to thank the Norwegian Research Council's Centers of Research Excellence Program and the University of Bergen for their support.